This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to the Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive, an afternoon briefing on the ABC News channel. Fran Kelly can't join me this morning, but joining me today as my co-host is longtime friend of this pod and the host of, of course, Insiders on ABC TV, David Spears, who is also in this uh, extended lockdown with me in Melbourne as well. So really, a lot of solidarity between us, David. There is. Hi, PK. Always good to slide into the chair for Fran, even if it is from my lockdown uh, home office that's uh, you know been revved up again. Look, soon we're going to be joined by Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor, to talk about why there are calls amidst this lockdown, uh, renewed calls, we should say, for the aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, to resign. First, though, PK, here we are, another seven days of lockdown to go. Yeah, which, of course, has um, really hit Victorians like a ton of bricks. The first seven days, well, it's still not, you know, we're recording this Thursday morning, was due to expire at the end of Thursday. They made the announcement that they would go for another seven days, and that's with some changes. So some of those new measures include a bit of a bigger radius, so not the five It's the little things rule. that help, though, right? Maybe you're more optimistic. I don't know. The extra 5Ks didn't kind of seal the deal for me, I've got to be honest. But yes, it's 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 good that you can go a bit further and perhaps, you know, exercise with a friend a bit further, which is the rule you can do that. Um, now, regional Victorians will see restrictions ease from Friday, but no travel within Victoria over the Queen's birthday weekend. Uh, year 11s and 12s can return to face-to-face teaching, but they have to wear masks. Of course, that's good for those students. Now, the Victorian government... Let's get into the nitty-gritty here. Now, they have announced two packages. Now, the first package for business, $200 million, and then a second package because they've gone for the extra seven days. But over the last couple of days, it looks like it's about to be resolved. There's been a stoush between the federal government and the state government because the state government says, you've got to lift more. You've got to help people who are in crisis. And the federal government has been very reluctant so far. I suspect by the time a lot of people listen to this, there may be a federal package announced. But look, what's fascinating here is that this lockdown itself, I think, is clearly seen by many in the federal government as an overreach, as unnecessary. But publicly, they're sticking to the line that this is something for the states to make a call on uh, based on medical advice. I don't think the federal government wants to pick a public fight over the rights and wrongs of lockdown. They know A political brawl is really the last thing Victorians want, and they know that if they come out hard against a lockdown, it risks them being portrayed as the ones who are cavalier about the virus, they don't care about crushing it or people getting sick and dying, and that would really run counter to Scott Morrison's newfound warning that this is such a wildly dangerous virus that we've got to do all we can to keep it at bay. So instead, we see not so much overt criticism of Victoria, but perhaps a little bit of passive aggression from John Frydenberg <laughs> pointing out that, you know, Victoria has received unprecedented amounts of support. They keep locking down, whereas others don't and so on. 
Yeah, it's funny. They're trying to have it both ways. That's how I see it. And yeah, by the time people do listen over the weekend, they often listen to this podcast. I do think they're going to make an announcement and it's going to be in the form of some sort of emergency relief, a bit like when you're in a flood disaster, you can get emergency payments, that sort of thing. And, and I think that's wise that they do step in. But they have tried to have it both ways saying, you know, that this is the lockdown state, but equally the Prime Minister standing up initially and saying he supported this circuit breaker lockdown. And I find it troubling that they're running two lines, like which mm. which one is it? And, you know, the best way to understand just how they really feel about all of this is to listen to some of their key backbenchers. And I've been speaking to some of them and this is kind of the sound of them. Here's, for instance, James Patterson and his view. I think we are getting to a point where asking the rest of Australia that hasn't had to go into all of these lockdowns repeatedly and for long periods to subsidise the failures uh, that have occurred in Victoria is getting unreasonable. Okay, so to Mm. subsidise the failures of Victoria. Now, this one's a tricky one, David, because last year there is no doubt that people were very angry, I think, at the state government's failures over hotel quarantining and, and the bungling there that led to that really long out lockdown. This time, this has originated in South Australia. That's where the virus came from, hotel quarantine, and not in our own state of Victoria. And contact tracing, according to Paul Kelly, the chief medical officer, Mm. has really improved. You know, he was impressed by it. He used kind of very positive language. So it seems to me that this isn't landing very well, this criticism of Victoria, because kind of the circumstances are dramatically different to last year. Yeah, and look, once again, I think this whole effort at blame game, and to be fair, they're all, you know, into this blame game. The Victorian government straight out of the blocks, you know, saying this is because the Commonwealth vaccine rollout and the quarantine failures are why we're in lockdown, and then calling it the South Australian outbreak and so on, and and, and now the likes of James Patterson and others saying this is the failure of Victoria. Look, I do think, you know, a lot of the time here, yes, there are clearly faults at various levels, but it's not so simple. I think this simplistic idea that you can pin this lockdown on Scott Morrison or Dan Andrews or James Molino. I just find all of that a little bit too simplistic when we're dealing with the complexity of this ever-changing pandemic. But look, to the to the point, those who are engaging in the blame game, in the federal government mm. at least, well, if they, they reckon this is the failure of the Victorian government, spell it out. Where have they failed? Because as you point out, the federal government's top medical advisers, namely the chief medical officer, is saying Victoria's done an incredible job, a tremendous job, I think the Prime Minister even said, with their contact tracing. I mean, Mm. it strikes me as odd they didn't have a uniform QR code system in place uh, until a week or so ago. That should have happened months ago, as it did in other states. But, you know, the experts are saying their contact tracing's pretty good this Mm. time. Yeah, and so when Bridget McKenzie, who also spoke to me, a Nationals MP from Victoria, says, you know, they can't contact trace, and yet the nation's chief experts are saying they can and they're doing a good job, then then that's, I think, well, you know, we've got to stick to the facts or the experts, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I don't know. I'm not a contact tracer. I don't analyse contact tracing. All I can do is hope that our experts are being honest with us. And if it isn't working, that they would tell us that Paul Kelly would level with us. Because, you know, when I put that to James Patterson, he said, well, you know, he's being diplomatic. Well, I don't want him to be diplomatic. I hope he's not being diplomatic. Mm-hmm. I, I want him to tell us the truth. If it's not working, Working. I want to know. I live in Victoria. If the contact tracing is a failure, we should know. But he's not saying that, David. He's saying that it's working well. 
I think the broader question is, and it goes back to, you know, that gold-plated system we kept hearing about from the Prime Minister for New South Wales. They keep drawing this comparison between New South Wales and Victoria. That's what they all want us to think about. Why, when they have an outbreak in New South Wales, you don't get the blunt instrument of a Mm. full statewide lockdown. You get a more localised approach. And I've spoken to a couple of smart people who are actually, I don't know, scientists, epidemiologists, Mary Louise McClaws being one of them. And I put that to her because I, I want to know too, as a Victorian, I'm sure you do too. Why? Why are we not living our best lives, right? And, and she says there are some differences in the cities themselves and the way that the city operates which has compounded the problem. You know, unluckiness compounded by the structure of the city. So in, when we saw that Northern Beaches outbreak, you know, anyone who knows Sydney, and I know it pretty well, I've lived there, knows that mm. people in the Northern Beaches kind of stick to the Northern Beaches. In Melbourne, we travel a lot. We cross the city. We, we, you know, there's, people really do move across the city because it's a very, well, that's why we kept winning the Livable City Award back then. Um, <laughs> remember, that? it was very exciting for us. So it doesn't feel that livable at the moment. But, David, there are differences. So I reckon it's getting to that point where, you know, the politicians need to sort of listen to the experts. Remember that old lesson we were learning? Yeah, uh, what are the experts telling us? It's an interesting notion. Why do we lock down uh, Hollis Bollis and right across the state in a way that uh, Sydney, let alone New South Wales, does not? I think it is a legitimate, you know, debate to have. And, and, and certainly the the veracity of this current strain of the virus, the speed with which it's spreading is also an issue here. Although, again, there's a bit of conjecture amongst Mm. the experts on, you know, just how wildly uh, infectious it is. But could you go for more localised lockdowns when you have the cases in Port Melbourne, in Whittlesea? And, you know, you look at the range of exposure sites that we're talking about here, you can understand why they've decided to lock down all of Melbourne. I think it's a good thing they're moving to ease the restrictions in regional Victoria. But just coming back to the point, though, how Victorians probably feel about this, a lot of this political debate is, well, perhaps even a little insulting for those who are out of pocket in particular, those casual workers. I mean, they probably couldn't give a fig about, you know, (laughs) who's to blame for what, who's going to provide support, whether it's federal or state. You know, they just need help. These arguments, well, other states didn't ask for help. Victoria keeps going to lockdown unnecessarily. They might be legitimate points to raise when you're talking to your party colleagues, trying to strategize the politics of this. But I just think they're lost on those who are feeling the absolute stress right now of not knowing how they're going to pay the bills. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I said that to David Coleman, the Minister Assisting the Prime Minister for Mental Health, when I was pressing him this week about providing this financial assistance. When Victorians hear, we've provided this many billion, that that is absolutely meaningless when you are in a lockdown and you can't pay your rent. It is... Seriously, it's where politics is totally out of touch with people's lived experiences and the fact that people are in genuine crisis. Just before we bring in our guest, and we're going to bring her in on this very theme, but just to touch on it first, David, you mentioned the Victorian government and this kind of blame game. One of the arguments that they put was obviously that hotel quarantine needs to be overhauled, and and that's Mm. an argument we've been hearing a lot about. But then the other one which I think is really interesting, which is the slow vaccine rollout. You know, if it hadn't been so slow, we wouldn't be in this situation. And I think that deserves a bit of interrogation because while I think it's appalling that the vaccine rollout has been slow and I'm appalled by it and I think it needs to be fixed and really, really accelerated, 
I don't think we should lie to people that if it was on track, we wouldn't have lockdowns because I don't think we would have reached the herd immunity, which we think is appropriate to avoid lockdowns. Mm. So I think it's disingenuous. What do you think? If we had done emergency approvals of the vaccines like the US and others, if we had managed to roll out to 50% of the adult population as the US now has, I think you're right. I don't think we would necessarily be avoiding these sorts of lockdowns. Brett Sutton, the chief health officer in Victoria, has suggested we do need to get to something like 75% vaccination to reach herd immunity. So, you know, even if we had done a lot better than we have on the, the vaccine rollout, I don't think we necessarily would avoid these lockdowns. The Australian psyche is now clear. We want the virus crushed. We want zero coronavirus. Uh, so I, th- I think that's going to take a lot to overcome. And then when it comes to quarantine, sure, if the government had done what it should have done and built more of the um, purpose-built facilities months and months ago, I don't know if we would have stopped using hotel quarantine necessarily. That's not what Morrison wants to do. He wants them in addition to hotel quarantine. So we could well still be seeing these sorts of problems emerge. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Guardian Australia's political editor, Catherine Murphy. Welcome back to The Party Room. Lovely to be with you. Catherine, very good, uh, good to hear you. And I want to delve straight into... Well, what I've found actually to be a fairly troubling set of developments in this whole saga about the vaccine rollout, and that's in relation to aged care and and perhaps more specifically, aged care staff. We should start with hearing from the Minister, Richard Colbeck, uh, facing some tough questions in a Senate estimates hearing. Are you responsible, yes or no? Well, it's not a yes or no answer, Senator, and you know that which is why you try and No, try and push I don't it. know that. Well, I, up until five Senator, seconds ago, I thought you were responsible for aged care staff. Well, well Senator, characterise it as you may. Look, I'll just give you my two cents on this first, if I can, Catherine. <laughs> Look, Richard Colbert keeps saying he's comfortable with the vaccine rollout. He keeps on saying it. At the same time, though, he confessed this week he has no idea how many aged care staff have even received a jab. How he can be completely in the dark about that, yet comfortable with the situation mm, curious. Is, is just puzzling. He seems untroubled by the lack of information on his desk as a minister. And then, as we heard there, unsure whether this is even his responsibility to know. It does point to a serious lack of accountability, doesn't it? Well, yeah, there has been this issue all along in aged care, certainly uh, during the first wave in Victoria last year, where tragically hundreds of people in residential aged care lost their lives persisting right through until this week where the Commonwealth has sought to, if not muddy the waters, to create a degree of uncertainty about who in fact is responsible for the sector when it is obvious who is responsible for the sector. We've seen that basically persist through until this week. I mean, look, Richard Colbeck is right in a sort of, you know, philosophical sense, right, where different tiers of government are trying to manage a massive public health crisis. So in in the sort of global sense, well, we're all responsible, none of us are responsible, we're working together. <laughs> yeah, it, but aged right? care, aged no, care no. Is, is Commonwealth funded and regulated, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. Yes. Uh, it really is. <laughs> you, can, you can see, you guys, that I am attempting to steady myself I know, and not, I know. <laughs> not throw this objects was, This in was the, the same before or... the Royal Commission. Didn't the Royal Commission nail this and say... It is the Commonwealth's job. It's the Commonwealth's responsibility. Oh, my God. There is no doubt 
who is responsible. The Commonwealth funds aged care and it regulates it. There's just no doubt. In terms of Richard Colbeck being comfortable with the pace of the rollout but having no idea, in fact, (laughs) how the rollout's going, is, well, astonishing. It's baffling. It's baffling. And the thing about staff is, look, I get that, sure, the the medical advice might have been do residents uh, first, right, as priority over staff, given the obvious vulnerability they face. But I went back and had a look, right? So 655, as you mentioned, died in aged care in Victoria last year. 84% of the outbreaks in aged care in Victoria came from staff unwittingly being infected and bringing it into the facility. I mean, the evidence is clear. It's there before us. This is the greatest risk that the residents face. It's from staff bringing it in. Well, not only residential aged care, also people who are going from home to home with yeah. home care packages. Mm. It's, it, it is unfathomable. Look, the government said several times this week that when they asked the AHPPC, I always get that acronym wrong, but the, the health advisors, their recommendation was residents first, staff second. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's the health advice. The government's made much of following the health advice. But, but it they is... didn't say forget about the staff. You know, no, don't, don't course... keep a log of what the staff are <laughs> No, they didn't say be a numpty. No, no, no they, they did no, not say be no, numpty. No, they, they, I, I don't imagine it was minuted. By all means, be a numpty at taxpayer expense. And I think their recommendation, I haven't followed every second of estimates this week, but I have, I have followed quite a bit of it. I think uh, the evidence in estimates was that because some people feel a bit crook, after they've had the inoculation, that there might be difficulties with staff Mm. uh, needing a sick day or or whatever else, right? Mm. So you can sort of imagine in some world where there isn't an outbreak, people, you know, of good heart and conscience and brain uh, coming to a decision like the one that we've seen. However, it is, I can't get it in my own mind because as you said, David, as you said, Patricia, it's like... Staff are a risk to residents if they're COVID positive. Yeah, and I just think that the failure to actually account for how many have received even one jab, I've heard the arguments they've put about how complex it is and they've had different streams of getting them vaccinated either in the centre or they can go to their GP and this and that, but it's so difficult to to keep a track of who's got a jab. How is it so difficult? I mean, they've got a they've got a Navy Commodore running this vaccine coordination (laughs) centre, for goodness sake. Someone, surely can check with the providers to find out how many staff have had a jab or not. Well, it doesn't seem that hard. Obviously, there are a lot of moving parts, but it doesn't seem that hard on the face of it. I think what this episode sadly shows us again are the sort of vulnerabilities in the sector. This is a sector that's sort of basically built on casual work, people moving between various homes in order to supplement their income. That's the structural problem underlying this. There are really deep structural problems underlying this. Mm, I mean, and I'm not saying this in the tone of voice that says this is an apologia for people being numpties because it isn't. But there are, yeah, there are deep structural issues that that the government has to resolve. And I think when we go back to that workforce point, right, why do you not inoculate the staff given they are a clear risk to residents if they're COVID positive? Well, it's... Like the whole sector is stretched so thin that you've you've actually got a minutely mm. war game. And that underscores that underscores the other uh, problem we heard about this week that they um, 
quietly let staff continue working across multiple sites back in November. Now, that was based on the medical advice. I appreciate that. And then it was reinstated, the one-site rule, um, just last week. But again, it it underscores the point you're making, Catherine, doesn't it, that there's just a lack of staff. Yeah, the Um, actual sector is in crisis. So they had to go back to the work across multiple centres thing because they don't have enough workers. No, <laughs> like the, exactly. the system's broken. The system is broken. And unfortunately, the system, it's, it's the system we least need to be broken, if that makes sense, right? The, yeah, during the elderly, this pandemic. Yep. The elderly, that cohort of people are at most risk during this public health emergency. And mm. we have a broken system, <laughs> yeah. basically so, sitting around all of well, that. Ju- and just a tangential point on that. I mean, this really shines a spotlight on, you know, what I suspect is going to continue to be and will be an election issue, right? It's how to attract that staff. We've had the Productivity Commission. We've had the Royal Commission. We've had you know, report after report saying you've got to get more staff. We're going to need huge amounts of additional staff over the decades as the baby boomers move into aged care. Wages have to improve. And yet... Mm. We've seen nothing from the government in its response to the Royal Commission about aged care worker wages. Labor's looking at it and still working out what to do, but I think this is going to be a a real boiling issue. It is absolutely a boiling issue. I mean, any of the forums uh, the three of us routinely go to during election campaigns, those sort of town halls, et cetera, (laughs) it's it's always mental health and aged care that dominate the questions, right? It's already a boiling issue. In terms of, you're quite right, David, to point out that the government has sort of created the impression that it has responded favourably to the Aged Care Royal Commission in all respects, but it hasn't. There are there are a number of recommendations that the government either rejected outright or is, is thinking about. And in terms of how we fix this problem in aged care, the other problem we've got is that the border's closed. <laughs> and yeah. When you think about how you're going to build up a workforce in order to buttress this system, which is in desperate need of of buttressing, both with personnel and funding and change in regulation, this is going to be a really difficult problem for the government to fix. Uh, You know, obviously wages are really important. And uh, one of the reasons that people don't work in the aged care sector is that it's very hard work. It's demanding work. It's emotionally taxing work, Mm. frankly. Uh, and the wages are not good. But trying to sort of invent a whole workforce with the click of your fingers when when there's no workers coming into the country, that's going to be extremely difficult, I think. Yeah. Now, let's move on to the the latest economic development. Now, the Australian economy has bounced back to pre-pandemic levels with our GDP growing by 1.1% since the start of the pandemic, exceeding economists' expectations and international comparisons to other G7 countries. The, The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, uh, was seen, you know, sporting his famous back in the black mug while discussing the GDP figures. But economists <laughs> warn Australia cannot rest on its achievements so far. So, you know, this new wave is clearly going to be a threat, isn't it, too, Catherine? I mean, with an extra week in lockdown, the second biggest economy in the country, it just shows how vulnerable this kind of bounce back is. It is, yeah, yeah. And I think what we all need to realise is that we are at the midpoint of this pandemic if we're lucky. <laughs> That's the truth of it because we've been thinking to ourselves, oh, well, if we, if we get everybody vaccinated, and that's a whole other debacle, but if we get everybody vaccinated, then normal life can resume. Well, to a point. 
there are all kinds of vulnerabilities around economic recovery. Obviously, the Treasury is correct to point out that there's been all of this capacity in the economy waiting to roar back the minute that public health restrictions are lifted. And part of the reason that the government's been able to safeguard that capacity, for want of a better term, is by some of the fiscal interventions during the crisis. JobKeeper kept workers connected to employers and so forth, right? So the economy could absolutely roar back the minute we're out of the woods. But the thing is, We are not going to be out of the woods with this pandemic for some period of time. We are going to have, as there are variants, uh, and I don't want to scare people or sound, you know, excessively depressed, but as there are variants to this virus, then, you know, that will affect how, how you inoculate, when you inoculate, whether there's boosters, whether the boosters are different, all of this sort of stuff, right? We are in this for quite a while yet. Now, the government's took the decision to remove JobKeeper, okay? But now, of course, the government has to think about, well, what next? Because we're not out of it. There are going to be outbreaks, some of them quite serious, like the one in Victoria at the moment. People are going to need support during future outbreaks, and that's that's a call on the budget. But the government has basically created a whole set of expectations out in the community too about what governments do during the pandemic. The government has has shown people what you do is you turn up and you help them. So... Mm. You know, empathy doesn't kind of cut out at the after the first third of the pandemic. It should really stretch for the duration. And now the government's having to manage quite complicated issues. So if we're going to give support to people and businesses in order to ensure the recovery is safeguarded and continues to happen, how do you structure that? What are the, well, what are the criteria that, for that? that? I mean, here's an idea. National Cabinet is meeting tomorrow, Friday. Why aren't they settling on some standing policy that says when there's a lockdown, heaven forbid, mm-hmm. um, you know, here's what support kicks in from both state and federal government. We agree as a national cabinet, this is the fair way to do it. Why is this so hard? And why does it leave the vulnerable stranded uh, heading into the second week of a lockdown in, in Victoria without support? Mm, because it's sensible. No, you know what? There is a reason that they're privately briefing, which is they don't want to create an incentive for states to go into lockdown. Can we just interrogate that, though? Oh, please do. We need to. What do you think, Catherine? Because, okay, so let's take that at face value. Does it create an incentive for Stephen Marshall, Mark McGowan, Anastasia Palaszczuk to lock down their people and their economy, knowing that there might be some federal support for workers? Well, look, I think there is a valid public policy debate that we have to have as a consequence of the government's decision to remove supports. And by that, I mean the government here in Canberra. But because of their decision to remove supports and to draw a line of sorts, then there has to be a conversation about what happens next, rather than the sort of ad hocery, screaming Mm. ad hocery that we're seeing in Canberra today on the day that we're recording, right? So that that has to happen. In terms of the incentives point, now, I understand why uh, the Commonwealth wants a fiscal exit strategy for the pandemic, right? That is... Of course, the Commonwealth will want to fix a fiscal exit strategy. And, and all this resentment built up 
too over the first wave of the pandemic that in the coalition party room about well, what are the states doing? Why are we why are we sort of you know kind yep. of printing money literally in order to fund uh, fund this whole thing? Right. So the coalition has some internal sensitivities to to manage as well. But the point is, look, they with they they withdrew the supports. They have set a bunch of expectations for themselves in uh, about what comes next by their past actions, if that makes sense, right? So there's a sort of straight policy discussion here about what we do next, the incentive point, although, I mean, I think that's mildly ridiculous myself. I mean, what, states just wake up one day and decide to lock down their whole economy because I mean, the it, feds will it, kick in? It causes in, them know. a huge economic and budget hit well, in their own state. Well, yeah, and, and, yeah, they and can't they be also, met. Well, it's sort of, it's silly, right? It is silly, the whole kind of intellectual foundation of that. It's sort of suggestive of the idea that the premiers are just sort of mendicants sitting there, you know, waiting to, you know, like, and that is not reality because everybody has to manage the politics of the pandemic. It's not, it's obviously not popular for the Victorian Premier to say, no, oh, that's it, no. right, right? So everybody is managing the same dynamics and now we're seeing, a, you know, the old coag shove backwards and forwards between Canberra and the States about who picks up the tab. But yeah. the reality is the, the Commonwealth wants a fiscal exit strategy. Well, good luck, guys, because the <laughs> pandemic's still happening. It's not, it's not exiting stage left it's, or right just no. just yet. Oh, they, no. They've got a point, though. The states, you know, can arguably do more, borrow more, all of that. Um, but I just think this idea that, yeah. you know, it, it creates an incentive for them to lock down mm. uh, is I mean, a stretch. Well, it's ludicrous. Let's 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 be honest about it. It is ludicrous. I understand, right? Again, that you've got to in a policy in a policy discussion, you've got to kind of ride the boundary of it. You've got to think about all probabilities. You've got to think about incentives and responses. And it's fine to have that seminar in public mm. if you want. But I imagine it's going down like a you know sinking yeah. like a stone in <laughs> yeah, that's right. in Victoria this morning to you know people in Melbourne locked down. I know we'll be looking at Canberra thinking, well, what the hell are you guys? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, doing? we're not loving this. Thank you very much. Look, yeah. Catherine, before we say goodbye to you, I just want to note something that I think is significant. We want to just note that Christian Porter um, and his defamation case against the ABC and Louise Milligan, um, this case now has, it's ended. Uh, it was meant to be a big one. Both sides, you know, came out swinging, saying they'd won. But then it came out that the ABC had paid no damages to Christian Porter. Yes, they'd paid for the mediation. They haven't withdrawn the article uh, that that he was contesting, but he really came out swinging that, you know, this is about repudiation and a humiliating back down by the ABC. And I've got to say, um, having looked at it, doesn't really look like a humiliating back down to me. Look, obviously, Christian Porter is has decided to discontinue this legal action. Uh, there are probably a number of decisions informing that. It was not a comprehensive victory for Christian Porter to decide to discontinue the legal action. You would expect, of course, the Attorney-General who uh, feels like he's uh, been through the ringer and feels angry that he has lost the Attorney-General's spot and all of this sort of stuff, 
to come out, puff up his chest and say, you beauty, I won. I mean, because people say stupid things all the time, let's be honest. So it's not a shock that someone would come out and say something ludicrous because the three of us deal with people saying ludicrous things most hours of most days, <laughs> right? So it's not it's not really surprising that he would do that. Good if you can get away with it. And because a lot of the media debate in Australia is polarised and part of a culture mm. war, uh, you could expect some amplification of your nonsense, but let's be clear, it's nonsense. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, there's still a lot of doubt as to whether Christian Porter will, in fact, contest the next election and therefore whether he'll still be in politics. In Although, to be clear, he said he would. Yeah, I know he said he yeah. would, but, uh, yeah, I mean, his colleagues still have their doubts. Um, but the renewed calls for an inquiry because, it's, you know, the, the allegations have never been properly tested, it just doesn't look like they're going to go anywhere. Yes, I've been of the view all along that Porter should have submitted himself to an inquiry and I think it was entirely valid for the Prime Minister to have a process that routinely occurs in the private sector now to establish whether or not he thought that Porter remained a fit and proper person to hold the portfolio he held. And I actually thought that process may benefit him. But uh, I don't know that that process necessarily will could ever reach a finding. So decent people of good heart and head have different views on this. I think he should have submitted himself to an inquiry from the get-go. But does that have the numbers in the parliament in order to constitute such an inquiry? I don't think so. Catherine, always great to have you on the podcast and pick your enormous brain. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. <laughs> Take care, guys. Oh, yeah, we'll try. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah, it's important that question time happens here on this podcast too. Look, the bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. This week's question comes from Bob, and Bob writes, at the upcoming federal election, will the Australian electorate consider the failings of the Morrison government or will the perceived need to save a few jobs in the fossil fuel and mining industries trump all other critical social issues like COVID response, women's rights and safety and climate change again? Well, I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. But David, David, what do you reckon? Well, without being unkind to Bob, it does sound a little bit like a somewhat loaded question uh, there. Look, obviously, there's no uniform approach to an election decision. If you're a mine worker, you might be more interested in what the two sides are planning for your industry. If your top priority is uh, climate change, well, you're going to be more focused on that. I do think more immediately than the election, though, uh, which will be in the next 12 months some point. Next week, Scott Morrison's going to face some pressure on this issue of climate change. He's heading to the UK for the G7 meeting. He's going to meet Boris Johnson. He's going to meet Joe Biden for the first time face to face. Uh, and these are two world leaders, influential world leaders, trying to lift the level of global ambition on climate change. So I will be fascinated. Uh, you know, put the election to one side. It's the international pressure on our prime minister right now on climate change. It's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And I always, you know, as we're in lockdown, David, always the idea of international travel, even I know the prime minister should <laughs> be doing it. It's just anyway, sorry, my head. <laughs> Wow. I must admit, when I saw he's going to Cornwall for the G7, then London, then Paris to meet uh, Emmanuel Macron, yeah, a little part of my heart thought, gee, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, a big part of my heart. All right, send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions, thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. 
That's it for the party room for this week. And thank you, of course, to David for filling in for Fran. Not filling in. It sounds so mediocre. No. Happy For, to for doing an excellent job <laughs> as my co-host. Now, Fran and I will be away next week, but we'll be back in your ears on the 17th of June. See you, Speezy. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.